Welcome to another UCTV.TV podcast presented by University of California Television. It's my great pleasure today to welcome Judith Freeman, the author most recently of The Long Embrace, uh, which is a biography of Raymond Chandler and a history of his marriage and uh, meditation on Los Angeles and much else. Um, but it's not fiction, so you might be asking, why is she here at Story Hour, which is supposed to be a fiction series? Well, it's a book, The Long Embrace is a book that makes people re-examine their categories. Um, NPR included the book in their top five crime and mystery novels of 2008. And their reviewer, Maureen uh, Corrigan, wrote, while The Long Embrace isn't technically a mystery story, it delves deeply into the puzzling marriage of the man who is arguably America's greatest writer of detective fiction, Raymond Chandler. Throughout The Long Embrace, Freeman manages the near impossible feat of paying homage to Chandler without being swallowed up in his trademark wisecracks and gorgeous language. Freeman is a dame who knows how to hold her own with a man who's trouble. <laughs> Close quote. Um, so I read the book shortly after it was published in 2008. Um, I'm a, a fan of Raymond Chandler's, and I write detective fiction, so it was, wow, there's a book about Raymond Chandler. So I picked it up. And as soon as I got halfway through it, I knew I wanted to get her here. Um, so it, the, the Long Embrace is indeed a biography and all of those other things, and it does give you the facts of a man's life and of his marriage. But what stays with you long after you finish the book is the sense that you've encountered something real, something alive. Um, the strange alchemy happens in the best fiction in which language and image and narrative and thought blend together to produce a dream that is truer than life. Janet Fitch described this book as part biography, part detective story, part love story, and part seance. It is also, I think, about as compelling and, persua and persuasive uh, description of the writing life as you will ever encounter. Uh, Judith's other books include Family Attractions, a collection of short stories and the novels Chinchilla Farm, Set for Life, A Desert of Pure Feeling, and Red Water, which was named one of the 100 best books of 2002 by the Los Angeles Times. She is the winner of numerous awards, including a John Simon Guggenheim Fellowship in Fiction and the Western Heritage Award. She teaches fiction in the Master of Professional Writing program at USC and divides her time between Los Angeles and rural Idaho. Please join me in welcoming Judith Freeman. Thank you, Vikram. I thank you for the invitation to be here and Kristen for arranging it. Um, it's really a great pleasure to be at Berkeley. Um, I was in New York last night actually doing an event at Symphony Space. They're doing a series that revolves around the year 1939 as being a really seminal year in American culture. That was the year that Raymond Chandler published his first novel, The Big Sleep. Um, it was an amazing year for Los Angeles fiction also. Uh, it was the year that Nathaniel West published Day of the Locust and um, Ask the Dust, John Fonte's great novel, and Raymond Chandler's The Big Sleep. This was really the first L.A. literature, and that all these books would appear in that year, 1939, is really quite amazing. Of course, it was also 
a very interesting time in Los Angeles history. I had lived in Los Angeles about 10 years when I discovered Raymond Chandler's work. And I have to say, I'm not really a reader of detective fiction or mysteries. I wasn't really drawn to him for that reason. Someone gave me his books, and I found them so extraordinary. Um, not only was he a great stylist, and he elevated the mystery novel into the realm of literature, but he was probably L.A.'s premier social and cultural historian. He was writing about so much more than who done it, And that became clear to me right away. And because L.A. to me is one of those extraordinary cities that is so hard to understand. It's the city, he said, that had as much personality as a paper cup. That it was the crackpot capital of the world. It was a paradise of fakers. But when he moved there in 1912, it was the brand new modern city that had incredible attraction for so many people. It was the city that was really packaged and marketed like automobiles or toothpaste or deodorant. It was the first city in America to be sold as a product to the people of America, and boy, did they buy it. So many people moved to Los Angeles in the early part of the 19th or the 20th century, the teens and the 20s, it became the largest internal migration in the history of America. Over a million people, most of them from the Midwest, really responded to the boosterism and the hucksters in L.A. that said, the air here is so fabulous it can cure any kind of ailment. All you have to do is move here and you feel better. It was a city that became ripe for all kinds of exploitation. So Chandler was born in 1888 in Chicago to an American father, an Irish-English mother. His father worked for the railroads as an engineer, and he abandoned Chandler and his mother when Chandler was seven years old and living in a residence hotel in Nebraska. He never saw his father again. His mother took him back to England and sort of threw herself on the mercy of her family. Um, he had an uncle who was wealthy who sent him to a very good public school called Dulwich College. He received an education in the classics. And in 1912, he worked a little bit as an accountant. His uncle wanted him to have a career as an accountant. But Chandler said that in 1912, he wanted to return to America because it seemed to call to him in some way. And on the boat, he met a couple from Los Angeles who said to him, you should come to Los Angeles. It's the brand new city. It's the modern city. We'll help you meet people. And Chandler did. That was how he ended up in Los Angeles. He worked as an accountant for a milk company. And then in the 1920s, for 10 years, he worked as an accountant for the Dabney Oil Syndicate. It's been said that the history of Los Angeles is really the history of three things, oil and real estate and the movies, Chandler actually had intimate um, acquaintance with all three by working in the oil industry in the 20s, by working in Hollywood in the 40s, and by, as I will tell you more about my book, by moving over 36 different times in and around Los Angeles. When I started reading Chandler in the 1980s, I realized not only was he a remarkable prose stylist, not only was he writing about America in a new kind of language, and America would never seem 
quite the same afterward. But he was also um, really creating a picture of an urban environment that was prescient, that really was in a sense um, about the future, about what was coming. Um, I began reading his letters. He was a wonderful letter writer. And I noticed that at the top of those letters, the addresses kept changing. And I began making a list of those addresses and realized that he'd moved more than three dozen times. I also read a biography of Chandler. And I became really interested in his wife, who he married in 1924. He had wooed her away from her second husband. He waited until his mother died because his mother disapproved of his choice of Sissy. And two weeks after his mother died, he married Sissy. He had lived with his mother up until that point and knew that he would forever be responsible for taking care of her. The interesting thing was in 1924 when he married Sissy, he was 35 years old and she was 53. But she listed her age on the marriage certificate as 43. And it would be years before Chandler really figured out that he'd married a woman who was much older than she said she was. And when he published The Big Sleep in 1939, he was 51 and Sissy was almost 70. In 1932, after working for Dabney Oil Syndicate for a decade, he was fired for alcoholism and womanizing. He'd had a number of affairs with secretaries. I think he was not happy when he discovered that Sissy really was much older than she said. Her health began to decline, and he developed a drinking problem um, to the point that he was fired from Dabney Oil in 1932. Sissy took him back, and they really began to reinvent themselves as a cloistered couple, a couple that was constantly moving, a couple that packed up their belongings in cardboard boxes, um, would live in the um, summers in Big Bear and in the winters in Palm Springs. They lived all over Los Angeles and Southern California. It was also the moment that Chandler began to transform himself into a writer. Um, he did this by reading Black Mask magazine. He had uh, no particular interest in writing detective fiction, but he said one day, I think I could write a story like that, and I think I could write it better. And Sissy more or less said, why don't you then? And he did. And he started producing stories that were so original, so unusual, partly because he was looking at America, and one thing he was looking at was the incredible corruption in the institutions in Los Angeles. And shortly before he published The Big Sleep, he'd written maybe... 15 stories published in Black Mask in the 1930s. And then he wrote The Big Sleep, which I'm sure many of you know about an oilman named General Sternwood with two bad seed daughter, daughters, one of whom is being blackmailed because she has posed in the nude, has taken drugs. The interesting thing was that Sissy in the 1890s lived in Harlem, and she posed nude for photographers and painters. And she was said to be part of this sort of high-life opium set. So when I came to write The Long Embrace, I felt that this um, marriage had not only um, been important to Chandler 
in terms of his life, how he lived out his life, but that it was very important in how he created his fiction and that I could see Sissy in his novels. She was certainly there in his letters. But one of the problems with writing about her is that he burned all her letters, their letters to each other shortly before he died in 1959. And when he did that, he effectively erased her. Um, So my job, I felt, was to become a kind of detective myself and that I was going to track down Raymond Chandler, all of his addresses, where he had lived in Los Angeles. I was going to go to different archives. Part of his archive is at the Bodleian Library, part at UCLA. I felt that Sissy held the key to Chandler somehow and that no one had ever looked at that. No one had ever tried to unlock that mystery. Um, and in doing so, I really came a lot of um, to respect the way that Chandler, I feel, really understood America and really understood the direction in which we were headed. And I want to read just a couple of quotes from Chandler, some things that he had to, to say about um, America. One thing that he said was that he felt that the story of our time is not the story of war or atomic energy, but the marriage of an idealist to a gangster and how their home life and children turned out. And when I read that, I thought, my God, it's the Sopranos. Um, It's not really the Sopranos, but I think what Chandler was saying was that this country has two poles, and it's the pole of gangsterism and it's the pole of idealism. And we're kind of the children, and we're still waiting to see how the home life is going to turn out. And at the moment, it's sort of a particularly intense time to be watching it all. Um, He also said that he was a great admirer of Nathaniel West, but that he felt that Nathaniel West's novel, The Day of the Locust, was really one long suicide note. Nathaniel West said that he was able to write such short and intense books because in the U.S. we don't have to prepare for violence. Violence is our birthright, the very air we breathe. And one of the things Chandler was writing about was a sort of casual, endemic, everyday violence that would become part of our future. In 1938, Los Angeles was so corrupt that the mayor, the chief of police, the head of the detectives were all indicted or recalled in one massive sweep. The gangsters in Los Angeles had so many of the politicians and the press and the police in their pockets. And that's what comes out in The Big Sleep. That was what Chandler was really writing about. Um, He was reading the newspapers, and he was looking at what was happening in Los Angeles, that kind of endemic corruption of institutions in which the ordinary citizen doesn't have a chance to get justice. The law was where you could buy it, he said. The streets were dark with something more than night. Um, And so that's what his fiction was coming out of. There was a tremendous reform at the end of the 30s in Los Angeles. The gangsters were driven out of town. And they ended up going out to a little wind-blown desert town called Las Vegas and sort of setting up shop there. But it was the beginning of a real reform in Los Angeles. So I want to read a section tonight, a couple of short sections. Um, 
It has to do with my search for Los Angeles, for, for Chandler in Los Angeles. At least half of the 36 places that I went to had been torn down, which really gave me a sense of how quickly things turn over in L.A. Um, people say there's no history in Los Angeles, but it's not quite true. It's just not the kind of history that we're used to. It's not that vertical history that goes back in time, but it's a strange kind of horizontal, lateral history almost that replicates the way the city spread out. I drove all over Los Angeles tracking down um, all the addresses and looking at the various neighborhoods. Sometimes I would go to revisit a place. Um, I'm, there's a mention in here, just one thing I'll explain is that I one day went to a Chandler apartment and in an old mailbox, a row of mailboxes, where he had lived in 1932, there was a tiny little piece of yellowed paper with the handwritten word Chandler on it. I was so astonished. I thought, could this have been left here in 1932 when Chandler lived in this apartment, which is just off Los Feliz in Hollywood? And um, so that appears in this section. And... Um, um, it was at this apartment in, in Greenwood where Chandler really began to write, where he got sober, he stopped drinking for an entire decade, and that's when he transformed himself into a writer. It was the season of wind. The rains had stopped and the Santa Anas had begun. The hot, dry winds that came in from the desert and blew all day and night setting people's nerves on edge, blowing over RVs in the Cajon Pass, leaving the streets littered with the lacquered red limbs of fan palms. In his short story, Red Wind, Ray had described such winds. It was one of those hot, dry Santa Anas that came down through the mountain passes and curl your hair and make your nerves jump and your skin itch. On nights like that, every booze party ends in a fight. Meek little wives fill the edge of the carving knife and study their husbands' necks. Anything can happen. You can even get a full glass of beer in a cocktail lounge. In this season of wind, Orange County was burning. A fire had erupted in the Anaheim Hills just south of the city and was threatening the expensive homes tucked into canyons and ridges. Over 2,500 houses had already been evacuated. People were shown on the evening news clutching pets and baby pictures, loading up their cars, preparing to leave their smoke-filled neighborhoods. The long blonde hair of the wives blew in the wind, and their husbands' shirt collars flapped wildly, and in the background the palm fronds flew at 90 degrees while the crimson and orange flames licked at the horizon. Watching the scenes on the TV, you knew that the wind was bad for the fire, or rather it was good for the fire and bad for the people. The newscasters all mentioned how this wasn't the normal season for fire, but seasons were no longer things you could count on. Some mornings now you woke thinking about the planet heating up and how this was definitely not a good thing. Hot, dry winds in January, raging fires, smoke and drifting ash falling on the city. Then you reminded yourself that there was no particular season for disaster in Southern California. Disaster was the continuous nascent undercurrent to our days. I kept the long list of Chandler addresses taped to the wall next to my desk where I could see it every day. 
Bonnie Bray, Angel's Flight, Bunker Hill, Loma Drive, Vendome, Catalina, Stewart, Leeward, Longwood, Gramercy, Meadowbrook, Hayes, Westlake, West 12, Highland, Greenwood, Reesdale, Silver Lake, Hartzell, Woodrow Wilson Drive, San Vicente, Elif, Shetland, Pacific Palisades, Brentwood, Idlewood, Riverside, Santa Barbara, Cathedral City, Allen Avenue, Big Bear, Harlow Haven, Arrowhead, Arcadia, Monrovia, West Duarte, Palm Springs, Havenhurst, Drexel, Camino de la Costa, Hotel de Charo, Neptune Place, Prospect. The list read like a plain song of wandering, the liturgy of a long search for home, a mini-mass for restless souls. As I visited each address one by one, working my way chronologically across the years of a marriage and the geography of a city, I checked it off my list. And as I looked for the addresses and the houses and the apartments, I also looked again at his books, and everywhere in his stories and novels I saw the evidence of how the neighborhoods where he and Sissy had lived had come into his fiction, how Silver Lake became Gray Lake and Santa Monica Bay City, just as everywhere in the city I saw remnants of the world he'd described. My list was getting shorter now. There weren't that many addresses left to track down. Sometimes I'd return to a place I'd already visited because I wanted to look at it again or to see if perhaps I'd missed anything. I went back to Bonnie Bray, where he'd started out on the side of the little church and the beauty parlor and the Mexican grocery store that had replaced the house where he'd lived. I revisited the house in Silver Lake where the flamingos were buried out front, and I went back to the apartment on Greenwood Place where I had found the name Chandler on the mailbox. I wanted to see if it was still there, and it was, but the name had badly faded. I could hardly read it now. So it was a fake after all, I thought. Chandler hadn't left it there. It hadn't lasted 70 years. It had faded in just a few months. A plant, somebody, somebody's idea of an homage to Chandler. A nice touch, though, I thought. I admired the gesture. I went back to Magnolia Avenue and 12th Street and Longwood Avenue and Leeward, returning to the area around the old Ambassador Hotel and I was surprised to discover that most of the hotel had been torn down since I'd last driven by. All that was left was the old crescent-shaped facade of the coconut grove and a portion of the main building. It upset me somehow to look at it. I felt it personally, the loss of the hotel where I'd swum in the lovely old pool as part of the swim club, where the guest had stayed when my husband and I had gotten married. I remember how I had loved arriving at the hotel in the afternoons on the days when I swam strolling through the formal gardens as if I belonged to that older world, the world of Valentino and Garbo and Gable. Now it was gone, demolished, erased, just another piece of lost L.A. When the ambassador had finally closed and I couldn't swim there anymore, I moved over to the Sheraton Townhouse Hotel a dozen or so blocks away, on the corner of Commonwealth and Wilshire, a red brick hotel built in a vaguely Georgian style that overlooked Lafayette Park just across the street. There was a nice pool at the townhouse, too, and a swim club I could join. It was a much smaller hotel than the Ambassador, but it had a lot of history. In Malcolm Lowry's novel, Under the Volcano, it's where the consul's wife stays when she's in L.A., 
but still it had none of the grandeur or stately elegance of the ambassador, though it did have a kind of old-world charm and an interesting mixture of guests. A lot of Europeans stayed there, groups of Viennese musician and ballet troops from Russia and ordinary travelers from France and Denmark and Germany, people who booked rooms in the hotel perhaps without realizing that the neighborhood wasn't so great, that you couldn't really walk anywhere at night. Lafayette Park was overrun with junkies and homeless people who had their own agendas and needs, and they were not averse to occasionally turning those needs into criminal activities. Sometimes I met some of the guests sitting around the pool or in the sauna, and when they discovered I was a local, they would begin asking me questions. They couldn't figure LA out. They didn't know where to go. They went downtown, they said, and there was nothing there. The streets were empty at night. The place felt dead. When they did rent a car, they didn't know where exactly to go or how to get there, and freeway driving felt intimidating. Plus, it took so long to get anywhere. Everything was so far apart. Wasn't there any public transportation, they asked. Where was the center of the city anyway? You could see the confusion these people felt about L.A. It wasn't like any city they'd ever been in. They couldn't figure it out. They were intrigued by the parts, but they felt lost in the whole. This was the anti-city, an illegible sprawl of freeways and roads lacking a discernible heart or even a vantage point from which it could be seen at a single glance. They knew where they were. The neighborhood surrounding the hotel was pretty much nowhere. But so much of the city seemed this way to them. The guests at the Sheraton townhouse looked out the windows of their rooms, and what they saw were junkies shooting up in the park and people who hauled their entire lives around them with the, in metal shopping carts, who lived outdoors on the grass. This, they believed, was L.A., and in a sense they weren't wrong. With a population of 80,000 homeless, you could say they were glimpsing a fragment of a sizable constituency, the poorest of the city's poor. The doormen called their guests taxis and they waited beneath the port cochere in their nice European clothes and looked out nervously toward the park at the ragged, haunted figures eyeing them from across the way and wondered about these citizens and what sort of city was it anyway that let so many of its citizens sleep in the rough. When the riots broke out in the wake of the police beating of Rodney King, the guests staying at the Sheraton townhouse stood at their windows and watched the stores and businesses burning around them. No one left the hotel then. No one would even have thought of leaving the hotel. Things went downhill after that. The Sheraton townhouse finally closed. The pool was drained and the gardens dried up. Razor wire appeared atop the garden walls. Later, the hotel was turned into low-income housing with a warden-like monitor who sat at a desk in the lobby and saw to it that everyone signed in and out. When I thought of the neighborhood, which is my neighborhood, I realized how much it had changed. The ambassador was gone. The Sheraton townhouse was a project for the poor. Even Bullock's Wilshire, the beautiful old department store that used to cater to the city's elite and which had the most elegant and extensive hat department in the entire city, had been forced to close, though the lovely Art Deco building had been preserved and was now the headquarters for a law school. 
Ray had written about Bullock's Wilshire in The Big Sleep, and he and Sissy had shopped there and eaten lunch in its top-floor restaurant, which even in my heyday was famous for being a nice place to meet where women could still be seen wearing hats and gloves. Above the bronze doors of Bullock's Wilshire were emblazoned the words, to build a business that knows no end. But the end had come, not only for Bullock's Wilshire, but for many other businesses along this strip of Wilshire Boulevard. Down the way on 6th Street and Carondelet stood the old Elks Building, where great towering statues of warrior women, several stories high, formed part of the outside facade. It was now a place to rent for movie shoots. It, too, had words emblazoned above its front doors. All things whatsoever ye would that men should do to you, do even so to them. A motto that in L.A. could be taken in different ways. These buildings had all been built in the 1920s at the same time as the main library downtown had been erected, and it, too, had inspirational words above its main doors. Books alone are liberal and free, They give to all who ask. They emancipate all those who serve them faithfully. Among the city's founders, there had been a kind of utopian longing to create a higher civilization in L.A., one that would inspire the citizenry to achieve new heights, build businesses that knew no end, treat one another as they wished to be treated, liberate the mind through reading and the arts, And you could still see this kind of idealism writ large on the facades of buildings that had failed their promise. Sometimes when I walked the streets near my apartment through the old neighborhoods of the city, I felt I I was moving through Chandler's imagination, striding down the streets he wrote about and passing the hotels and landmarks, the areas where he and Sissy had lived. Even my own street turns up in his stories. He must have liked the name. Carondelet, with its faint ring of New Orleans. Some of the lovely big old apartment buildings that were so reminiscent of Chandler's era, like the Royale on Wilshire and the Rampart, were now boarded up. But others had survived, including the Ansonia apartments on 6th Street and Carondelet, and the Asbury just down the way, and the Rampart Arms, the Gaylord, and the Talmadge on Barendo and Wilshire, named after Norma Talmadge, who once lived there. I often walked down a street called Lafayette Park, where the DA in the big sleep had lived in a sprawling mansion, but all the big old houses had long been torn down. The street was now lined with condos, owned mostly by Korean families. Up the way at the intersection of Lafayette and Beverly Boulevard stood the Hotel Lafayette and the Zimba Room, with the painted sign still visible on the side, $2 a night with bath. These were the kinds of places that Chandler had written about, but the area had gone badly downhill. The Hotel Lafayette had become a flop house, and the Zimba Room was now nothing more than a faded sign. But still, an aura persisted here. The L.A. of the 20s and 30s felt alive in this neighborhood. If there were such a thing as Chandler Land, this was it. And each day I felt surrounded by a kind of shabbier version of that era, a strangely eviscerated ghost of the world I had been trying to imagine. The question was this. 
When you constantly change a landscape, you erase the collective memory of a city. How can you live without memory? In 1943, when Chandler got offered the job at Paramount Studios to collaborate with Billy Wilder on the screen adaptation of Double Indemnity, he and Sissy left their desert retreat in Cathedral City and moved back to L.A. They took an apartment in Hollywood not far from Melrose Boulevard and the studio where Ray would be working in an office in the writer's building. They wanted to be close to the studio, and it was only a five- or ten-minute drive to Paramount from the small apartment they rented at 1040 Havenhurst. The day I drove up to Havenhurst, the fire was still burning in the Anaheim Hills, and a raft of blue smoke floated over the city. Another fire had broken out the day before in Malibu Canyon. Now the Santa Anas blew the smoke from the south and from the north, and the city felt sandwiched by fumes. It was 92 degrees on January 8th. According to the weathermen, we were headed for another record. I drove west on Beverly to Crescent Heights and cut up to Santa Monica Boulevard. Havenhurst was just a block east of Crescent Heights. Many of the houses didn't have numbers out front, and it took me a while to find 1040 Havenhurst. It was a white duplex with overgrown trees and bushes. I stood in front on the sidewalk, looking around the neighborhood at the view of the Hollywood Hills, which were just faint blue shapes through the smoke. It was cut-rate L.A. No glamour, no glitz, no charm. Mail-order L.A. As Ray once said, everything in the catalog, you could get better somewhere else. So I'm going to Jump ahead a little bit, and I'm going to read just the last part of the book. Um, The last few pages. Before I do that, I want to say that when The Big Sleep came out, critics in America didn't really appreciate it. They called it a study in depravity. They said it was a book that was populated by moral defectives. Um, But in England, they recognized right away that this was a really original voice. And they treated Chandler as a literary writer. He was always appreciated more in France and in England in the beginning than he ever was in America. In France particularly, he was embraced by Camus, who said that he felt that Chandler was America's own homegrown existentialist. Camus said that he was affected when he wrote The Stranger by reading Chandler's novels. Um, But in America, they didn't quite get it. In England, they always got it. Um, It took a while before people began really embracing and realizing Chandler for the writer he was. By the end of his life, he understood that he had a huge following that people all around the world really appreciated his books. So I want to read just a, a piece from, from the time that I spent in Oxford. Um, the majority of Chandler's Oxford, um, archive is at the Bodleian Library. As the weeks wore on in Oxford, I began to feel as if I were living entirely in the past, caught up in the rhythms of the charming old city as well as Ray's long-gone world. He was my most steady, most constant companion. I kept to myself, dined alone in the evening, retired early to my room, 
ate my solitary breakfast, and went off to the library to join him again each day. Sometimes I took long walks through the cobbled streets of Oxford, past All Souls and Jesus College, and the sign advertising the guided ghost tour of the haunted university sites. I often stopped in the same little pub and had a drink, always sitting at the same table in the corner of the room, always aware of being an outsider. In time, I grew used to my solitariness. But one morning when I entered the dining hall, I found it full of students all sitting at the long tables and chatting with a few professors seated among them. I learned that a seminar in physics had drawn the students to the college for a few days and that we would be dining together for a while. That first morning, I sat across from one of the professors, shyly hoping for conversations, but after a brief, polite hello, the professor chose to ignore me, preferring to chat with his students. My own reticence prevented me from pressing small talk upon him. An English friend once said to me that in the UK, there's an intimacy within a group where you're known and accepted. Whereas in America, by contrast, she felt to be a vast nation of strangers, whose casual politeness and social interest is a way of negotiating that strangeness. For several days, I sat at the professor's table, largely ignored by him, until one morning he turned to me and unexpectedly said, and what exactly brings you to Oxford? I told him that I was working on a book about Raymond Chandler, and I had come to Oxford to consult the Chandler archive in the Bodleian Library. Raymond Chandler, he exclaimed, his face suddenly brightening, but I'm a, I'm a great fan of Chandler's. I absolutely love his work. I discovered his books as a young man, and I read everything of his I could get my hands on. I still keep those books in a bookcase next to my bed and occasionally reread them. With the mention of Chandler's name, the icy reserve of the professor melted. We had managed to negotiate the frozen terrain separating our worlds and arrived in the sunny clime of mutual affection. As it turned out, the seminar ended the next day, and I never saw the physics professor again. Still, I think of him now and then. He reminds me of how many Chandler fans there are in the world and of their great variety, how Ray's work cuts across age and class and background, reaching into all cultures, seemingly erasing time itself as each new generation discovers his work and revives it with enthusiasm. At the end of his life, Ray understood the great appeal of his work, and he relished the idea that his books could reach so many people, including the intellectuals who had sometimes snubbed him. He once said that only he and Marilyn Monroe had managed to reach all the brows, highbrow, lowbrow, and middlebrow, an observation Billy Wilder echoed in an interview about Chandler. It's a peculiar thing, Wilder said, you know, in all the 40 years plus that I have been in Hollywood, when people have come up and asked questions, newspapermen, researchers, or letters from all over the place, the two people that I have been connected with whom everyone is most interested in are Marilyn Monroe and Raymond Chandler. There is some kind of fascination as well there might be, because they were both enigmas. I knew them well. I made two pictures with Monroe, and I rode and lived on the fourth floor of Paramount for a long time with Chandler, and they were indeed enigmas. No one understands me, Mrs. Loring, Marlowe says in the long goodbye. I'm enigmatic. Monroe and Chandler, Marilyn and Marlowe. 
In a way, they represent the idealized sexual poles of the American psyche. Marlowe is a kind of archetypal male, the man of honor and action, immensely attractive to women, friend to those in need, like the cowboy of the American myth. Only he goes back much farther than that, to the medieval round, to the medieval round table. The American cowboy and the English knight rolled into one. Monroe is a kind of lushly gorgeous female icon, her naked sexuality all the more attractive for the vulnerability and unthreatening sweetness that comes with it. It's the vulnerability we feel in these characters. And I wonder if it isn't, at least in part, that sense of vulnerability that touches our psyche so deeply and gives these figures their staying power. Poor Marlowe, you know, always getting beat up. And poor Marilyn, in her own way, always getting beat up too. In their sad good-naturedness, we see ourselves. Most writers are frustrated bastards, Ray once said, with unhappy domestic lives. I was happy for too long a time, perhaps. I never really thought that I was anything more than a fire for Sissy to warm her hands at. She didn't even much like what I wrote. She never understood that to get money, you have to master the world you live in and not be too afraid to accept its standards. Most people never understand that you go through hell to get money, and then you use it mostly for people who can't take the punishment but nevertheless have needs. What he was saying was, I did it all for Sissy because she had needs and she couldn't take the punishment of the world, but I could, and I had to protect her, and I did. And what did Sissy do for him? Besides provide him the entry into his world of fable by nurturing his role as her white knight, she kept him sane, she watched over him, she cared for him and worried about him. That look of appeal that Dilly's pal their friend had spoken of, the somewhat urgent expression on Sissy's face the last time she'd seen her, I felt that Sissy understood that what was going to happen to Ray when she died. She knew he was alcoholic and needy, a shy, awkward, vulnerable man who could not possibly live alone. What a man needs and wants, he said, and surely a woman too, is the feeling of a loving presence in the home, the tangible, an ineffable sense that a life is shared. It's what Ray wanted anyway. It's what most of us, I think, want in the end, the ineffable sense that a life is shared. Sissy knew how badly things might go from him, for him when she was gone. That was the look of appeal which Dilly's pal had noticed in her eyes the last time she saw her with Ray in the bar of the Connaught Hotel. Do help him, she was saying. I appeal to you. Take care of Ray. Well, what the devil, as Ray might say. Skip it, why don't you? For Pete's sake, give it up. I always was a man without a home. Still am. Sissy died in 1954 at the age of 84. Um, at the time, Chandler was 66. Somehow, remarkably, even in death, she managed to alter her age. The death certificate that I found at the Bodleian Library listed her age as 66, not 84, <laughs> which made me realize the complicity of Chandler in the fiction about her age. 
The other thing I found in the Bodleian, as all of you probably know, realize for many years, critics have realized that the character that Chandler created of Philip Marlowe was really the white knight, and that he was there to stand between the little guy, the citizen who couldn't get justice from the corrupt institutions. And um, he was that figure of the white and the cowboy who rides into town to protect the citizens from the corrupt railroad barons or cattlemen or whatever. And what I found in the Bodleian was that, yes, they had had nicknames for each other. She had called him Ramio, but she had also invented another name for him, and that name was Galabioth. You can hardly pronounce it as a nickname, um, Galabioth. And when I tried to find the origin, it was a completely made-up name. But it has overtones of Galahad, and it became clear to me that she had endowed him with that persona of the White Knight, that his years at, the, at Dulwich College had given him a kind of Victorian coat of honor, which he gave to Philip Marlowe. Chandler lived five more years after Sissy's death. They were five pretty sad years when he once again really descended into alcoholism. Um, when he tried to replace her, she foresaw what was going to happen to him without Sissy. All of those years... She really had grounded him. She really had enabled him to write his novels. She had contributed to the central myth of his novels, that of Philip Marlowe. And in the end, he was completely lost without her. Um, so this year is the 50th anniversary of his death, March 26, 1959. What's really wonderful is that he did cut across all the brows, high brow, low brow, middle brow. It really is possible for a philosophy professor to become deeply enamored of his work, or a writer like myself, or Vikram, just as it's completely possible for um, the guy who works on my car, the mechanic, to become a great Chandler fan. And it's still possible 50 years later. And um, that, I think, is an indication of his great lasting legacy. So I'd be happy to take any questions if, if anyone has any. Um, yeah, thank you. How long did it take you to find all the information for your book? Um, as I said, I got the idea in 1986, but as often happens, you get an idea, and it incubates for a long period of time. I ended up writing a couple of novels, um, and then in 2002, long time later, it just felt like now was the time. I felt like I, this is the time to write this book. Um, it was probably uh, three and a half years altogether, uh, two years of research um, in the library at UCLA, the library at the Bodleian, and about a year and a half of writing. And I wrote the book in longhand. I've sort of taken to writing in longhand. And then I go to the computer and enter the book. Um, and interestingly, I tried to sell it as a novel at first, and um, my editor didn't like the pages, and he really shouldn't have. They weren't very good. But then I gave a talk at UCLA, and it was a 23-page talk. And it was really the book. It was about Chandler and his marriage, his literary legacy, and tracking him down in L.A. And um, my editor said, this is the book. 
I mean, this is the book that I, I think you could write. But then I did an interesting thing. I went away, and I spent a winter writing the book, really. And as writers sometimes do, you, you decide you're going to do just what you want to do, even though you've gotten an advance from an editor who said, this is a nonfiction book. I decided that I would write one chapter of fiction, one of nonfiction, one of fiction and one of nonfiction. And the fiction was Chandler at the end of his life, looking back on his life, a kind of sad old man. And then it would be nonfiction looking for Chandler in L.A., writing about his life, telling his story, looking for Sissy, traveling all over. And while I was doing it, I was thinking, this is never going to work. You're nuts. You can't make this work. It's apples and oranges, fiction, nonfiction. But I wanted to do it. I certainly didn't tell my editor I was doing it. And I never looked back. I never went back and kept rereading what I'd been writing. I just kept writing ahead. And at the end of that year of writing, I went to Idaho and sat down and read the whole thing. And I was right. I was nuts. It didn't work. It was apples and oranges. But what I realized is if I just took out every other chapter, the fiction, and put that aside, I had my book. And I don't think that I would have gotten that book if I hadn't written it that way. And I say this because I think it's so important for artists and for writers to really follow your instinct. And the uniqueness of the book, I think, in part, is that it doesn't have a linear structure. It's not a biography that starts with the grandparents and sort of plods forward through a life. It's a circular, sort of swirling narrative. It's not a conventional biography. I'm a novelist, and I've brought a novelist sensibility to writing this book. And it really, when I finished it, I realized that it, it just was so important that I wrote it that way. Even as I kept telling myself, you shouldn't be doing this. It's not going to work. Um, I think the process is everything. Um, so maybe I would have written it more quickly if I hadn't said, this is the way I'm going to write it. Um, but when I sent it to my editor, I sent him the nonfiction. It was perhaps 325 pages. And then in a separate brown package, I sent him the fiction. And I said, this is what I chose to take out of the book. And um, um, this is how I wrote it. But in the end, I feel like this is the book. And he responded uh, quicker than he's ever responded to a manuscript I've sent. And he really loved the book. And the first sentence was saying how much he really liked the book. And the second sentence was, I think you were spot on to take out the fiction. Um, so that was how the book was written. Yeah? Could you compare that with Red Water? Uh-huh. Which is also by a writer who is entirely written in a fictional way. Did writing that earlier I think that it, uh, this, she's, she's asked me about my last novel, Red Water, which was published in 2002. It takes place in southern Utah. It's a historical novel based on real events and real people that occurred in 1857 when a group of Mormons killed 120 people in a wagon train um, that was passing through their territory for absolutely no good reason. Seventy um, women and children were killed. And it was told from the perspective of three women who were all married to the same man who was at the center of that massacre. 
a polygamist named John D. Lee, who had 19 wives. And I did a lot of research for Red Water. Um, to me, it was such a horrifying story. And the question of the center of it was, how do you get really basically good people to commit such evil? Because those Mormon settlers were not terrible people. They were pretty good people. And yet, you got them to commit this incredible act of evil. I had to do so much research because I really wanted to get the history right. I was using actual historical figures. And what it did in terms of preparing me to write The Long Embrace was that it helped me to understand how to do research. That was really important, how to use a library, how to go to original documents. I feel like I did get the history right in Red Water. And out of that history arose these sense, this sense of personality of those three women, one of whom was 13 when she married John D. Lee, um, the second was an English woman in her 20s, and then one of John D. Lee's older wives. So there was this range of women who were telling that story um, about early Mormon settlement, um, about the events that led to this massacre. So it was very helpful in terms of um, helping me learn how to re- do research, but it was also a novelist for the first time writing about history. And someone once said, you know, history is the sum total of all the things that they're not telling us. And every generation of writers has the right to go back and look at history and try and tell a little bit more of the story. That's what I felt like I was doing, but it was a novelist coming to facts. Whereas with Chandler and that book, the interesting thing was, was that it was a novelist using facts, but to not create uh, a fabrication, but to try and tell another version of, of a life and the history of a city and the story of a marriage. So not until I was halfway through writing The Long Embrace did I realize how interesting that I chose in both books, the novel and the nonfiction, to get at the man who's at the center of the story through the women that he was married to. I really didn't set out to do that. Um, but that was what I realized, oh, that's part of maybe what interests me, is that you have these historical figures that are often men because they were the main players and the, those in power. But how interesting to try and tell those stories, um, not by focusing on the men in power, but by focusing on the people who are adjacent to them. So I think there are connections in both books. Yeah, one of the things you see in Chandler's novels is a lot of driving. Because, for one thing, he loved cars. He just embraced cars. And I think it's hard for us to now realize just how exciting it was to have an automobile. You know, how it's really... It's inculcated in the word itself, automobile, that you now have the power to move yourself across a landscape to go wherever you want to go. He so embraced that, and he loved driving. So one of the things that you see in his novels is Marlowe is always getting in a car. He's always driving through Los Angeles. And, of course, this became a fabulous way for 
for Chandler to describe Los Angeles, the gas stations at night with all that wasted light, you know, the houses in the narrow, dark, banked canyons with their lights hanging in the windows like oranges. He was a beautiful prose stylist, and driving through Los Angeles gave him the opportunity to really look at the landscape and to really describe what he was seeing. And um, so I think that for Chandler and for Sissy, being as reclusive as they were, the automobile, one of the reasons they moved so often was because they could. It was possible. It was actually possible to get in a car and go to Big Bear for the summer, Cathedral City for the winter. And for me, it was also an experience of Los Angeles to um, track down all those addresses, to go to many neighborhoods that I'd never never been to before. And um, he really was able to evoke the city um, in, in part because of his complete embrace of the automobile culture. So I don't know if that answers your question, if that's what you meant. Thank you very much for coming and for inviting me to... You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.